This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, we educate women on what a healthy vagina is and what women can do when things aren't as we'd like and how the right lubrication can support you. We wanted to dive into lubrication because according to data, only 20 to 25% of women seek treatment for vaginal dryness, yet it is more common than you think. Many women don't even talk to their doctors because they're embarrassed don't want a pharmaceutical remedy, or they just simply accept it as a condition they don't need to treat. As we've discussed many times, we women are trained to grin and bear it. So please join me in welcoming Suzanne Munson, VP of Product Development and Compliance at Fairhaven Health. She recently shared a wealth of information in another episode about supplements. So we are pleased to have her back to share her wisdom. Suzanne, welcome. Good morning, hi. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be connecting with you today. I still recall when I met you at the ASRM conference in October 2019, how you had shared with me that some of the products that Fairhaven Health has didn't have toxins like parabens, et cetera, in it. And I thought, oh my goodness, we must get to know each other. Unfortunately, women aren't provided proper education about our bodies, and we tend to seek help if we do it all when we're in great pain. And it probably usually is a lot of pain because unfortunately we also grin and bear it. Um, (laughs) And so painful intercourse, you know, certainly an example of when we might face pain, but again, some women think it's fine. So let's, let's dispel some of these myths. Let's talk about some of the basics around having a healthy vagina and let's start there so that we can help women better understand what a normal, even though it may be a personalized normal, what that should be like. Well, so I think, you know, looking at medical textbooks and information written um, about uh, reproductive health, we know that a healthy vagina should be at about pH 4 and that it would also have plentiful, friendly bacteria um, present. So these are unfortunately difficult things for women to measure objectively at home. Uh, Not many of us have pH strips handy to regularly measure our vaginal pH. And so what often happens is that it becomes easier to identify an unhealthy vagina. So unwanted odor, dryness, 
itchiness, irritation, painful intercourse, all of these can indicate that your vaginal health is sub suboptimal. And that's, so rather than, than us really knowing what it's like when it's healthy, we're more easily able to identify when things are not healthy. So pH balance is one of the things you spoke to. Out of curiosity, can you buy pH balance strips or pH measuring strips to be able to measure what your pH is in your vagina? Is that even possible? Yep, you can get them online pretty much anywhere. So yes, um, it, they are available and they're pretty accurate. So I think, you know, if there was, um, I think it, it becomes useful if you suspect there's a problem, you could measure your pH. Um, and then if you are working on improving your vaginal health, you can sort of see how it might improve over time with those steps that you're taking. So I think it's a, it's a, interesting study. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it, but it's also not necessary right. either. Yeah, no, totally get it. I was just curious because I, I never had thought about that. Now also lubrication and, and healthy bacteria are also important for the vagina health. So what should a properly lubricated vagina be like? And let's talk also about the healthy bacteria. When vaginal health is compromised, in addition to the uncomfortable things we already talked about, like odor, dryness, itchy, itchiness, or irritation, women can experience pain with intercourse or end up with a recurrent yeast or bacterial infection. And all of that can be impact proper lubrication or how much lubrication is present. So if we kind of back up and look at how the vagina works to maintain an equilibrium or its overall state of health, you sort of get a picture of that it's a pretty intricately, beautifully designed system, like most things in the body. So the vagina does have mechanisms for um, maintaining its own health. Um, and that involves a, a really close connection between vaginal pH and the vaginal microbiome uh, microbiome being the collection of bacteria that are present in the in the vagina. So a healthy vagina has a pH of about four, like we talked about, and plentiful, friendly lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. This pH in that range and the plentiful bacteria work together to maintain vaginal health. So uh, friendly bacteria produce lactic acid, which helps keep the pH low, and then healthy bacteria thrive when the pH is low, which means then that there's a continual production of lactic acid, which helps keep the pH low. So as you can see, it's sort of a circle of good vaginal health. What ends up happening is if there's any intervening circumstance that upsets either the pH or the amount of friendly bacteria in the vaginal ecosystem, things get out of balance really quickly. And that's when women start to see some of those uncomfortable signs and symptoms that we talked about. If your vaginal pH increases, um, which might happen after your period because menstrual blood has a pH of seven or after intercourse because semen also has a pH of seven or even after your fertile window because the cervical fluid that's produced when you're about to ovulate also has a pH of seven, those can raise your pH temporarily. And a lot of times your body has the ability to kind of work it back down to a healthy vaginal pH. But if it doesn't and your pH stays elevated, 
it starts to impact the viability of that friendly bacteria. And again, that cycle starts. So if there's not enough friendly bacteria, the friendly bacteria aren't there to produce the lactic acid, it can't get the pH back down, your pH stays ele elevated and that friendly bacteria can't thrive. So in addition to keeping the pH low in the vag vagina, the healthy bacteria also play another important role. They serve as part of the vaginal mucosal armor that keeps the bad bacteria from staking claim in the vagina. I definitely want to draw a picture of that for sure, but it was definitely helpful to and very clear that it is a system. So it, you can see how it becomes quickly a vicious cycle. Yes. And, and this is, I think, why so many women, like you started with, they're grinning and bearing it all the time. They're dealing with odor that they don't want. They're dealing with itching and irritation. They're dealing with not enough lubrication during sex or which causes pain, which is no fun at all for anyone. <laughs> and, and, then, and then as women age and um, vaginal dryness becomes not just a thing that they experience during intercourse, but also just a regular part of their daily life, you can see how um, vaginal health really impacts women's quality of life. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about what we can do about it, right? So sure. there are things that you probably can do to help keep the system properly balanced. And there are probably things that you do that don't help at all. So let's start with the things that maybe one should avoid and why, and then we can get to the solutions so that everyone knows there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, these symptoms, um, well, let me back up for a second. I just want to say that um, we did, we've done some survey research where we know that women, due to some of these uncomfortable sy symptoms that relate to suboptimal vaginal health. So, for example, unwanted feminine odors. And I'm not talking about the feminine odor that is attached to a diagnosable infection like bacterial vaginosis. Bacterial vaginosis has a very specific kind of odor that's associated with it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about other things short of having a diagnosable infection. We know that the presence of these odors impact women's quality of life in that they change the clothes that they wear or that they choose to wear, the activities that they choose to participate in, and also the amount of sex that they have. These odors are so embarrassing to women um, and that we can have a long discussion about why that is, um, that is culturally driven um, to a big extent. But women are so embarrassed by these odors that they alter their lifestyle. So it's not surprising that women go to drastic measures to take control of those things. And this is where we, the conversation about douching becomes important. Um, douching is advertised as a, as a way to clean your vagina. Again, when things are working right, our vagina has pretty intricate, well-designed systems for cleaning itself and maintaining homeostasis and balance in the vaginal ecosystem. So um, feminine washes and douching isn't necessarily needed when things are, are working well. And these products end up being doing more harm than good. And the reason that is, is that when you, the extensive washing washes out the good and the bad. So you're getting rid of the good bacteria and, and 
disrupting that vaginal um, mucosal armor that is there for the purpose of helping with vaginal cleaning and protection. And you're washing all of that out. So you're leaving your body defenseless. So it sounds like douching is not the best idea. So what what can someone do to solve for the unbalanced or improperly balanced vagina and help with odors and some of these other impacts like the painful sex, et cetera, that one experiences? Sure. There's a, there's a couple of things. And one other thing that, I, that women can do uh, to help. One other thing I wanted to say about douching kind of to drive the point home is that the National Institutes of Health warns women against douching because of an increased risk of cancer, infection, and infertility. So it has been shown that women who douche regularly have higher rates of STDs and have a higher risk of things like cancer, and it can also lead to issues with their fertility. So it's not a trivial matter here. It's a really big health consideration. And that's why your question about what women can do (laughs) is really important. So again, I like to go back back to the connection between healthy pH and the amount of friendly bacteria. So if you if there if you can do anything to either support keeping your vagina in a healthy pH range and or support the amount of friendly bacteria that's present, you're making great strides towards maintaining vaginal health. So a couple of things I, I recommend are taking a daily probiotic supplement that has a combination of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria to help replenish healthy bacteria. Also, there are products on the market. We, Fairhaven Health has a product called Isofresh Balancing Gel. That is a gel that you insert into the vagina every three to four days or as frequently as you think you might need it that contains lactic acid. uh, And it, it is bioadhesive, so it'll stay put in the vagina providing an extra dose of lactic acid to help keep the pH in the range that will support the flourishing of the healthy bacteria. And when you talk about the probiotic, I assume you mean taking it orally instead of vaginally? Yeah, so that's a good question because there's been you know research about um, whether you can take an oral probiotic supplement and have it have it um, reach the vagina to make a difference. Um, I mean, certainly there's no harm in using a vaginal probiotic. It, it's cumbersome dietary probiotics fall. It's, it's a regulatory issue. Um, nobody making a, a dietary supplement can recommend that women use it vaginally. Um, anything inserted into the vagina becomes a medical device. So, and that's not a claim that anyone making a dietary supplement can make. So, certainly, if you go on the internet, you'll find any number of articles on how to take your probiotic and and insert it vaginally. That's not something I'm in a position to recommend doing for regulatory reasons. I'm also convinced that the research is sound enough in this area to suggest that taking an oral probiotic can have the benefit of replenishing bacteria even in the vagina. The probiotics will be excreted through your feces, which then can make it into the vaginal canal. 
Thank you for that clarification. Because I, I know some of the specialists I've spoken to have even recommended for me to take it vaginally in some cases. So thank you. That's a really helpful description to understand the rationale for why uh, it may not be on the label when you go to Whole Foods to get your probiotic to insert it vaginally. Right. Um, yes. And if, if you see that, <laughs> it's, it's a, probably a sign that the company is not <laughs> aware of the, the restrictions on that. And I would maybe, I mean, Whole Foods is not likely to to have a product that wouldn't be reputable, but it would it would fall into a, a claim that would make me suspicious of kind of the company's motivations. And then as far as, you know, taking these probiotics, I've done some interviews with folks who are experts in gut health. And I know some of, and we're still better understanding the gut microbiome. I mean, there's so much to learn. It's only something that we're really beginning to research now. And some say that taking the wrong probiotic or taking a probiotic when you don't need it is not helpful. So how would someone know, I guess, first, what are your thoughts on that? And two, then how, if this is indeed true, how would one know, okay, well, in my case, I should take one daily. And by the way, I take one daily, so <laughs> I might be wrong in yes. taking it, who knows? Yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation. And as you started with, there's much to learn and and much to still discover about the benefits of probiotics. I think that if you, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria are so prevalent in our kind of natural microbiome, I think keeping it to those, and I, I should preface this by, I'm not an expert in probiotics <laughs> by any means. So what I do know and my gut reaction as a nutritionist is, that most people are not to the point of having such a fine-tuned system that doing something healthy for their body would end up, that, that is presumed to be healthy would actually hurt it. Another example to kind of put this in perspective is I see on the internet um, people saying that, you know, they don't like the kale, the, the fad around eating more kale, and that it limiting. And, and my response to that is if someone is talking about, is criticizing people for eating more kale, we have missed the point completely, right? Kale is not the end all be all to your health, but encouraging Americans to eat more kale is not going to hurt anyone. So I try and think of things in a big picture way. Most people can benefit from more lactobacillus and bifidobacteria for immune health, gut health, vaginal health. I, I, I would stand by that statement. I don't think we're to the place for most people that we can get, that we need to be worried about erring on this. We don't need to yet be worried about erring on the side of giving to um, people too much of a good thing. Let's talk about lubrication. You know, I, I think there was data that 20 to 25% of women may have painful intercourse, uh, if I'm quoting this correctly, and a lot of them don't even seek help. So I, I really wanted to spend time now better understanding lubrication, like what is normal? What isn't normal? If it's not normal, is it something about the pH balance? Is it that sometimes there's just things you can't control and as a result, you need to have a lubricant? If so, what, what kind? just really understanding that that whole pathway when it comes to lubrication. So I guess what drives having a 
properly lubricated vagina. And yes, let's start there. A quick and easy way to describe how the body works when it comes to lubrication is that it is driven by the hormone estrogen. So when estrogen is present in the body or when it surges, as happens when you're about to ovulate, cervical fluid is produced. So again, this is why women would see an increase in production of cervical fluid around ovulation. And if they don't see that increase in cervical, uh, fertile quality cervical fluid, it could be a sign that there's a problem with their estrogen levels. So anything that disrupts estrogen levels can impact the amount of lubrication that women experience and can lead to vaginal dryness. So fertility meds, chemotherapy, having your ovaries removed, as so many menopausal women experience, um, as we age, our estrogen levels decline, and that impacts the amount of lubrication we produce. Uh, So estrogen also plays a key role in maintaining the healthy vaginal ecosystem as it promotes the production of glycogen in the vaginal cells. And glycogen is a key source of fuel for healthy bacteria, which ties back into our previous conversation about the connection between healthy pH and friendly bacteria in maintaining vaginal health. So when estrogen is present, glycogen is being produced. That serves as a source of fuel for the healthy bacteria and things kind of click along in a, in a healthy way. When estrogen levels decline, there's less glycogen available for the healthy bacteria to feed on. And it starts that vicious cycle again of the pH getting out of balance and there not being enough friendly bacteria there to, to produce lactic acid. So I think it all works together. So if women are experiencing hormone imbalances where their estrogen levels aren't where they need to be, it sets the stage for poor vaginal health and poor lubrication. So anything we can do to ensure that women have the right amount of estrogen at the right time, the better this all works together. So then I guess just to break down a few things for the folks who are listening, obviously, if someone is on fertility meds or had chemotherapy clearly those people would definitely need a lubrication. I'd love to talk to you about what those could be. But then if someone is, you know, stress can certainly impact it. So obviously the idea would be try to reduce your stress. Um, And I'm not going to underplay how hard that is, but we can just (laughs) state the obvious of try to do it. There's lots of tools out there, but I don't want to spend the time on that at the moment. Then, you know, also too, there's so many women now tracking their cycles. Like I remember... 10 years ago when I started my journey, it was a piece of paper. I would take my basal body temperature, circle the chart, and see when I might be ovulating. And um, you know, I think it's really important to know that for those who are just measuring cervical fluid, given that if your estrogen levels aren't in the right place, then you may not be producing it. And so that's a sign that something's going on with your body. And it would be best informed if you're already Uh, monitoring your cycle, because if you know based on your basal body temperature that you should be ovulating, but your cervical fluid is not getting at the right level, then that's something important to know. And also too, what I've learned is that as women age, the amount of cervical fluid we have upon ovulation varies, which I did not know. I wasn't monitoring my body as closely. 
So what I had learned is in your 20s, you may have three days of the egg white cervical fluid indicating ovulation. And as you get older, you may have like one day. So I just think it's important to know because I always like to, as we've been doing here, help people understand like how things should be working so that one can better monitor their body to figure out, okay, what do I do? So before we get into lubricants, I'm curious if you have a perspective on women whose estrogen levels may not be right. And they, let's say, for example, it appears based on basal body temperature that they're ovulating, but they're not getting the proper cervical fluid. Is there something that those women can do to get at an underlying root cause? Or would you much rather say they need to just go to the right doctor and get that assessment? Or do you have some specific questions they may be able to ask a clinician or, or things that you can point them to? I think what you just described is so important the, about monitoring and trying to predict ovulation and using any one particular uh, sign as the end-all be-all sign. So the, I, I think you know, there, there could be many reasons why a woman's hormone levels aren't where they need to be. So yes, I would definitely recommend that they see a doctor, but um, I wish that every woman had that synopsis of what you just said <laughs> at their fingertips so that they could begin to understand if they aren't seeing cervical fluid when they think they're ovulating. That can be problematic for a couple of reasons. One, it could be a sign that there's something wrong with their hormone levels. Fertile quality cervical fluid is so um, instrumental in their chances of conceiving. It plays such an important role in protecting the sperm as it makes its way uh, through the reproductive tract to meet the egg. So if you lack cervical fluid during your fertile window, not only does it maybe signal a problem with your hormone levels, it also can make intercourse painful, which when you're trying to conceive is no fun at all. I mean, it's no fun anytime, but certainly when, when sex is already sort of prescribed or more like a chore when you're trying to conceive naturally, um, not having enough lubrication makes that even more uncomfortable. But it also, the lack of that fertile quality egg white cervical fluid can mean that the semen and sperm aren't well protected as it's making its way through your reproductive tract to meet the egg. So, um, those that would be the framework for the the discussion I would want women to have when they go see their doctor. Um, the you know the woman's been charting her BBT or using some other tools to predict ov- ovulation. She knows she's ovulating. She's not seeing egg white cervical fluid. She can bring that to her doctor and say, "I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned for a few reasons that this important." thing that should be a marker of my fertility isn't happening. What can we do about it? Well, thank you for acknowledging my statement. I I felt I had to say it because I monitor a lot of the groups talking about these fertility tracking, or I like to now call them reproductive health tracking apps, because I don't think it's just about whether or not you're going to have a child. I think, you know, as we've discussed here, it's important just as baseline knowledge to better understand your body. And It is unbelievable how people focus so much on, did I ovulate or not? And then they're struggling with various health issues and not understanding why. And I'm like, these basal body temperature charts tell you so much more than just whether or not you ovulated. Um, So I I definitely wanted to at least um, get some of those points in. So, So thank you. 
FemPower Health is pleased to partner with the upcoming FemTech and Consumer Innovation Summit. The summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health, having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders. Join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. You know, there are obviously lubricants out there and, you know, we started with fertility. So maybe we could talk about you know, if someone is having challenges, and we talked about how the healthy cervical fluid certainly helps protect the sperm, but I'm sure there are cases where people do need extra lubrication. So talk to us about what that might look like and what's important to consider. So I think, you know, there, there are two, two reasons why people would want, uh, women would want to use lubricants. One is, let me retract that. I'll say three reasons. <laughs> One um, one reason is just pleasure during intercourse. So whether or not you're trying to conceive, whether or not you're lacking any sort of production of cervical fluid, there are lubricants, um, intimate lubricants that some couples choose to use because it makes the experience more pleasurable. Another reason why women, women and couples would want to use lubricants is when they're specifically trying to conceive and they want to both make that experience more pleasurable, um, but also they want to use a lubricant that won't harm their chances of conceiving. So a fertility friendly lubricant. And then another reason is uh, daily moisturization. So this isn't as common in premenopausal women. Most premenopausal women, unless they've experienced chemotherapy or had a um, uh, or are taking a fertility med, I mean, I that they're not, most premenopausal women aren't experiencing vaginal dryness to the extent that they would want to use a daily moisturizer. This is, but that again is very common as we age. Um, most menopausal women, more than well over 50%, have vaginal dryness to an extent that they are looking for a way to provide just daily moisturization in addition to needing a lubricant when they have intercourse. So for all those reasons, people might be looking for some type of lubricant. And then there are two big categories of lubricants. There's uh, water-based and there's silicone lubricants. And each have their advantages. Water-based lubricants tend to be more gentler on tissues and typically produce less irritation. But when you're using them for intercourse, they dry up more quickly than silicone-based lubricants. And so you end up often having to use maybe more a, a larger amount or apply it more frequently de- during intercourse than you would if you were using a silicone-based lubricant. For fertility specifically, and then maybe as we age, I would almost always, well, for fertility, always recommending a water-based lubricant because I don't think you, that you could actually formulate a lubricant that is silicone-based that would pass the test required to become a fertility lubricant. You have to, with those specified fertility-friendly lubricants, you have to show that they will not harm sperm or eggs. 
and I think that I have never seen a silicone <laughs> um, fertility friendly lubricant. So water-based is the way to go for fertility. And then probably for menopause too, because your tissues become so sensitive with the lack of estrogen present, present that uh, a silicone-based lubricant would be too harsh. So again, those two categories, water-based versus silicone, women might and couples might choose one or the other based on their life circumstances and what they're trying to accomplish with that lubricant. And then a couple other considerations that I like to think about are what are they using to preserve that lubricant? Parabens, we know, are ubiquitous. Parabens are used in food packaging, so many things, um, cosmetics, because they're, they are a great way to preserve a product. Unfortunately, they have also been linked to reproductive health problems in both men and women. So finding a lubricant that does not have a paraben preservative in it, in my mind, is key to a key component to supporting your reproductive health. Uh, Another thing that is talked about a lot with lubricants is uh, the presence or lack thereof of glycerol or glycerin. Glycerol is often used in lubricants and it's suspected of harming the friendly bacteria. So my recommendation is to choose a lubricant that doesn't contain glycerol or glycerin. And related to that are natural oils. So it's very tempting, I think, to use a natural oil as an intimate lubricant or for daily moisturization if you're if you're needing that. And by natural oils, I mean coconut oil or I don't know, what would be another common one? I think olive oil. Has olive oil been used? No. Yeah, sometimes olive oil. Um, any of those natural oils, it's tempting to use because we have them around. What could be more natural than a natural oil? The, the thing that I get concerned about with using them repeatedly is that they're heavy and they coat the vaginal lining um, and they're not easy to wash out. So over time, that, that has a, a way of impacting that, that vaginal armor and impacting the friendly bacteria. So then we kind of start this cycle again of not having enough friendly bacteria, not having the right pH, all of that. So I, I feel like it, staying away from those natural oils that will coat the vagina is, is the right way to go. And also with those natural oils, you can there can be some rancidity issues. So if you're not sure how fresh that oil is, how long it's been sitting out, if it's been exposed to air, light, any of the things that would make an oil go rancid or oxidize that oil, you might end up being, might end up applying an oil into your vagina that has toxic chemicals present when the oils go rancid. One thing I wanted to dig into quickly is you mentioned that it's helpful to, some may want the lubricant to help them with the fertility. So we spoke earlier around the cervical fluid, if it's, you know, in the right, the right egg white quality, um, that that's really supposed to protect the sperm. Do you find that an additional lubricant, especially if it's one that's fertility friendly, is helpful to have regardless of how great your cervical fluid is? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So I think I I would answer it this way. The 
there, I don't think that there's a, a fertility friendly lubricant out there that can say definitively this product increases your chances of conceiving. The purpose of that product is not to make that claim. The purpose of the product is to provide a lubricant that will do no harm. So that when um, on our baby dance lubricant, we recommend it to all couples that are trying to conceive because we know that most couples want to use a lubricant when they're trying to conceive naturally. And whether or not they, the lack of fertile quality cervical fluid is a real issue for them or not, they're using the lubricant anyway. So we want to make sure that they're using a verified uh, a lubricant that's been verified to not harm sperm or eggs. Framing the conversation around making sure there's so many l- bad choices out there for lubricants, pH too low, going to harm sperm or eggs, might have implications for your reproductive health in terms of like a natural oil coating the vagina and setting the stage for healthy bacteria to die off or not being able to replenish itself. Those, there's so many bad choices. We want people to know that there are good choices around lubricants for trying to conceive. And then with respect to picking the lubricant, so we all know that the front of the packaging is the marketing, the back of the packaging is the details. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to say, even I'm a, I'm a label reader when it comes to food. And sometimes I will admit the marketing folks get to me and I, I smile. I'm like, you know what? You did a very good job because for whatever reason, I didn't read the back of the label. And now that I did, why did I buy this? Right. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm sure there's some of that with the lubricant. So can you help us understand, you know, that whole, the front is the marketing, the back is where the real information is. Like, how does someone pick the right one? Like, what are the regulations and approvals that are required in order to be able to make said claims? Because I know some industries are more regulated than others. And so I think it's important for us to know, like, can anyone slap a label on to say fertility friendly? You know, is it, does it go through certain regulations? And if so, what are they? What would someone look for? Right. Great. Thank you for, for asking this question, because I think it's important for people to understand the framework around all of this. So um, interestingly, any intimate lubricant in that sold in the United States is considered a medical device. So um, they're class two medical devices, which is one step up from class. So class one is the lowest risk from the FDA's perspective. Class two is the next high, um, next highest risk class. So they're not even considered class one medical devices. They're considered class two. So the FDA pays very close attention to products that are marketed as lubricants. And then specifically around fertility lubricants, there's a special class of lubricants that are fertility friendly. The problem is that you manufacturers of these lubricants are not allowed to say per FDA regulations, anything on the packaging that says FDA cleared. So even though there's this involved process when you're developing a product that you want to make fertility claims on, you have to you know, submit an application to the FDA that includes all of your testing that you've done to show that it's sperm-friendly, egg-friendly, and doesn't have any um, endotoxins in it, which are the end products of um, pathogenic bacteria in a product. Um, so that, that's about 
the preservative that you have in there. So you have to show, demonstrate that your preservative that you have in the product is working. And so just endless amounts of tests. At the end of that, you get FDA clearance as a fertility friendly lubricant. And that allows you to make fertility friendly claims on your packaging, but you cannot say this is FDA cleared. So what ends up happening because of the world we live in, people will make, they will, they will sometimes say um, their product can be used um, for fertility, even though there's only three products, uh, four now in the U.S. that have been cleared for that purpose. So it's a little frustrating um, being from a company that's doing it the right way to see kind of what happens in the market because it is confusing to customers and we can't blame the customers for not understanding this. Um, there's just no way for them to understand it. So kind of the, the challenge I give to customers is to um, use what they know about their health and what they know about um, fertility and, and kind of pull things together. So fertile, a lubricant that's pH 7 is going to be the, probably the, the healthiest for fertility because it's pH matched to the fluids that are happening when you're fertile. Um, so we've talked a lot about pH in the vagina. Most times of your cycle, you want your pH in your vagina to be around four. The time that you don't want that to be the case is when you're ovulating. You want the fluids in your body at the time of ovulation to be around pH 7 because that is matched to semen and sperm. So if you have too low of a pH when sperm is trying to make its way um, to the egg, that sperm is not going to do well. It needs that pH 7 to be able to do what it needs to do. Looking for a water-based lubricant, um, so that is easy to tell on the packaging. Another marker of a healthy lubricant is isotonic. The word isotonic is, is used to describe the product itself matches the salt concentration of your body fluid. So anything that is isotonic means that there will be no pulling of water from your tissues or pushing water into your tissues due to the presence of that product. It's isotonic. It means it'll maintain water, the, the right, um, the water equilibrium inside and outside the cells. Products that are hypertonic will pull water from the cells and dehydrate them. So those, I guess, you know, kind of to summarize this, because I'm getting very long-winded, um, making sure the lubricant is water-based, making sure that it is pH 7, and making sure that it's isotonic, focusing on paraben-free products, because we know that parabens are linked to um, reproductive health issues, and choosing a lubricant that doesn't have glycerol or glycerin in it are the five things that I would challenge consumers to look for when they're choosing a, a lubricant that they want to use for fertility. Is there anything else that would be helpful before we move into talking about fertility or menopause and lubricants that we should talk about when it comes to fertility? I didn't want to miss any key points before we move forward. 
I think we, I think we covered it. I think we, you know, you did such a great job of laying out the importance of uh, fertile quality cervical fluid. And, and that's sort of the key. Like if you don't have that present, you would want to use a lubricant. If you don't have enough of it, um, it can make intercourse painful. So that's when the need for a lubricant would come in. So I, I feel like we, we did a, a nice, well-rounded discussion on all of that. Okay. So then let's get to menopause. Now, <clears throat> menopause is such an interesting state in a woman's life because again, there's little we know, and it seems like every woman with menopause presents differently. We could probably do a whole podcast on that, <laughs> but but we are yes, talking we more about <laughs> we could. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking more about lubrication. So maybe you could just give like a high level overview. Um, and I know we spoke earlier about estrogen levels, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what happens to women's bodies. And I don't know if this starts to happen in perimenopause. So feel free to to elaborate on just kind of the process of what happens to the woman's body as she ages and how lubrication can help. I think, you know, estrogen is the key and, and it's sort of as simple as that, although it, everything is more complex than one, one statement. But as our estrogen levels decline over time, as we age, we see a decline in our natural lubrication. So, um, and that leads to a huge majority of menopausal women complaining of vaginal dryness. And again, um, not just during intercourse. So it's not that they're, they're just not producing the arousal fluids that come with intercourse. It's daily vaginal dryness that leads them to look for, for something to help with um, moisturization. And the lack of moisturization highlights some other irritating symptoms like itching, also um, many menopausal women are complaining of odor, burning, um, some other vaginal discharge. The declining estrogen levels starts a cascade of vaginal health problems that are really impactful to menopausal women. So then it's more than simply, here, let's give you some lubrication. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about just some a high level overview of some things that women have in their toolkit or should have in their toolkit to help them, including obviously lubrication. Right. So I think, you know, one of the things that I know we're not going to highlight so much here is this is why hormone replacement therapy can be an important tool in women's toolkit because it can help with those, replenish those estrogen levels. Um, there's some good research too about phytoestrogens and um, so more natural approaches to, to telling your body that estrogen is present um, and all of the benefits that has. So, you know, it will help with natural lubrication and, and lead to not having to look for treatments um, necessarily. But in the absence of, of hormone replacement therapy or being able to replenish your estrogen levels in some other way, choosing products that can help relieve some of those symptoms are really helpful. So again, we're, we're talking about water-based lubricants with lactic acid to support healthy pH and to allow the healthy bacteria to grow. That's a big thing that women are looking for are those kinds of products. And I know that Fairhaven Health developed a product specifically for menopausal women called Sage. I'm curious 
with using something like sage, is it something where a woman mainly uses it during intercourse? Is it something that's like a daily application? What are the the recommendations? Again, we're really trying to educate and help women feel better. And again, with the grin and bear it, I thought it would be helpful to like really break it down on what they should be doing to so that they can live a, a better life and just feel better about themselves. I think um, it's our Sage product is is meant to be both a lubricant that can be used during intercourse and also a daily moisturizer for temporary relief of vaginal dryness. So um, kind of two in one, like um, knowing that at this age, it's not just the lubrication during intercourse to make intercourse um, more comfortable or less painful that women are looking for. They're actually wanting something every day to take away that um, burning, irritation, and dryness. So our lubricant, our sage lubricant is um, pH around five. So one of the interesting things about menopause is that there's a belief that the, the healthy pH is not exactly four anymore. For some reason, as we age, the healthy pH range goes up a little bit. So we've targeted our product to be higher than the pH four that we make products for, um, like our balancing gel that we talked about is pH four, which is right at the premenopausal healthy, or sorry, um, well, I guess premenopausal is the right word, healthy pH range for um, our menopausal product. We we wanted it to be a little bit higher. Um, and we have found that that in our testing in development, that that leads to less irritation. So the lower pH products in a, in a menopausal woman um, lead to more irritation for some reason. So targeting a higher pH for menopausal women, it's a water-based lubricant with lactic acid, no parabens, no glycerol, and no hormones, which Again, the hormones have their place, but for this product, we didn't want to include any hormones in it. And it's funny, I was actually going to ask you about the content of the product. I didn't know if it was similar to the things you had mentioned around infertility and or fertility issues or trying to conceive efforts, um, but it seems like the same considerations apply about the, the parents of parabens and other toxins. Is there anything else just based on you know the women's experiences with using a product like Sage and... I, well, I guess one I do have is around the FDA clearance. Um, are there specific things they look for to be able to speak to a product that supports menopause or do they not have a subcategory for that? Because I know you mentioned that they have strict regulations for lubricants in general. There's not any specific things related to menopause. Again, the this stage is a class two medical device, so it's cleared as a lubricant uh, but they're kind of, it's kind of lumped into all the other lubricants and not unlike where there's a specific category for fertility. I think it would be great yeah. <laughs> um, if, if we start, I mean, and I think this is coming, that we start talking about specific needs for menopausal women and maybe creating that framework that shows that this is a special time in life and requires a, a special set of um, specifications and considerations. No, absolutely. And it, it really is great to see, again, I've been following women's health extremely closely for the past 10 years and just seeing the changes in the conversations that are happening 
And I'm starting to see now menopause is being, is considered much more of the conversation. And I mean, regardless of anything in women's health, more research is needed, but, but I do see the path at least moving in that direction. So, so I agree with you. It'd be nice to have specific regulations for each of these, just to make sure that women are taken care of as best as possible. So maybe you could just share a little bit about, you know, anything that the women who are in menopause are talking about when it comes to using a product like Sage. And I'm more just curious because I think we just don't know a lot about menopause. And some people think one day your body just clicks and you're in menopause. And, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation or lack of information. So I'm just curious, at least from the lubrication perspective and just general insights you think would be helpful for women to, to know based on the people that you are speaking to who use these products. What you just said really resonates with me about what, what has happened over the past 10 years in this conversation around menopause and vaginal health. And I like to give a shout out to the baby boomers here because I think it's the women of this generation, the baby boomer generation, that as they reached menopause and started having these uncomfortable system symptoms, they started demanding solutions. And, and I think that has caused sort of a revolution in the conversation about vaginal health. I think as a culture, we are often difficult on women in countless ways. And specifically around health, we tend to discount the complaints and discomforts of women as trivial or worse yet, non-existent. And And over the last 10 years, because women have, as they've aged into menopause, have started demanding solutions and saying, no, I'm not going to live with this. I want to continue to have pleasurable sex life with my partner. I want to continue to have a quality of life where I'm out being active and doing the things I want without having to deal with irritation and dryness. It has really caused... I would say a, um, a revolution in the products that are being generated for this for this category of health. I think it's wonderful, and I was so heartened a few years ago. I was at a meeting of OBGYNs, the um, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, their annual meeting, and when I looked around, almost every single exhibitor was there showcasing products for menopause, and I thought wow, (laughs) this is something very new. Um, And I think we owe it a lot to the, to the women who have been aging into this, into menopause with a different attitude about expectations around how their quality of life should be. So I'm grateful for that. And I think we owe them a debt of gratitude in that it's really pushed medical professionals and people in in health care to, to look at this all in a new way and help provide solutions. No, absolutely. And I, I would say, I was chuckling because, you know, seeing a room full of companies who are now providing support and products for women who are facing menopause, I think it's great, but it could present another problem, which is now women are on the internet trying to Google. So which one do I use? And I think you did right. a great job today <laughs> providing some perspective, at least from a lubricant perspective, and even just educating us around how the woman's body works, I think is a good baseline for women to ask the right questions or read the labels in a proper way to, to begin making the right decisions and not using just marketing. 
to guide their purchase choices. So, so your information today, I think, will prove extremely helpful. Before we end, I'd love to ask, you know, we talked about so much today, and I think all of it will be helpful. Um, but if you wanted today, everyone, to walk away with one thing, what would be the one, or if it has to be three, I'll go with it. <laughs> what would be the key takeaways for those who've listened to this podcast today that they should walk away with um, to ensure that they have um, the best health possible? It was a great conversation. Thank you. And I just love that these issues are being highlighted by you. So thank you for that. And I think what I, my, my takeaway is that I, it really, it really bothers me and upsets me to, to hear women, hear that women make choices about how they live their life based on their vaginal health and specifically that their vaginal health is suboptimal and that impacts the way they live their life. Um, like we talked about with, you know, not wearing loose fitting clothing or, or not going to the gym because they're afraid of how they smell or not having intercourse with their partners frequently as they would like to, because they're worried about how they smell or they have irritation. So all of those things, when I hear those things, it, it just breaks my heart. And I want to leave this conversation with the thought that, um, please don't discount your symptoms. Please don't, like we started with, grin and bear it. There are ways that we can address our vaginal health and restore it to a place where everything, where we're feeling good (laughs) and we don't have to alter our lifestyle because of it. I think that is a perfect statement. Suzanne, Thank you for your time. I really appreciate the knowledge that you're willing to share with a broader group because it is important to know. And we're just going to keep putting these messages out there and make sure that women are educated and and do right by themselves. And uh, thank you to all the clinicians out there who are working hard to continue to be updated on new information about women's bodies so that they can also support these women during their struggles. So thank you again, Suzanne. Thank you, Georgie, so much. Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And another way to support FemPower Health Podcast is to leave a review where you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for information purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week.
Thank you for joining us on another enlightening episode of FemPower Health. No matter where you are in your journey, our website is brimming with content tailored to your specific topic of interest or life stage. Dive in and discover the resources and insights waiting for you. Your voice matters to us. And if you found value in this episode, please take a moment to write a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but it also helps others discover our podcast. By spreading the word, you're empowering women everywhere with the information they need to navigate their unique health journeys. And if this episode resonated with you, please don't keep it a secret. Share it with friends, loved ones, or anyone you believe would benefit from the information. Together, we can create a world where every woman feels supported, informed, and empowered. Remember, knowledge is power, and FemPower Health is here to guide you and support you in every step of the way. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for informational purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Until next time.